All right, as you came in, you got a little card. If you didn't get one, I'm going to, who didn't get some? You want to come and maybe you can help me just pass them around a little bit. You guys all get a card? You guys good? Here, Luann, can I hand this to you? Just pass them yes, back. Sure. Just, everybody should get one. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians again, so if you want to open in your uh, scripture journals, if you consider Christ Church your home and you've not gotten a scripture journal yet, there's still some more on the back table, on the little circle tables, so you can grab a, a Thessalonians scripture journal if you'd like to do that. If not, we're in the Bibles on your row. We're on page 986. Page 986, if you're new to God's Word, that's where you'll find a letter to the church in Thessalonica. All right, church, the theme of the book of 1 Thessalonians is living for Jesus while waiting for Jesus. Good. Living for Jesus while waiting for Jesus. So Renee's going to come. She's going to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and then I'm going to do a quick little recap. As she reads, if you were not here last week, keep your eyes open for how many times you see the word God, gospel, and Christ. If you were here last week, be looking for all the ways that God, gospel, and Christ are connected to our relationships with one another. Got that little assignment? Looking for God, gospel, Christ. Or you're looking for ways that those relate to human relationships. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. All right. Chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. But our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, not with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Renee. All right, so last week, I tried to draw our attention to two things. One is how many times the word God, gospel, and Christ are in here. It's over 11 times. So my first conclusion is that this little section is about God, the gospel, and Christ. Make sense? The other theme, then, that runs through this is our relationships with one another. 
So the conclusion, first, we talked about this last week, first, Paul's relationship with the people, but how this relates to our relationships with one another. So the conclusion we drew was that our relationships should be God, gospel, Christ-centered. Does that make sense? So all I'm doing is taking observations from the text, and I'm bringing them to the forefront, and I'm saying, look, I think this passage is about us and how when we relate to one another, the focal point, the purpose for relationships is God. It is the gospel. It is Christ. And so we concluded that the theme of this little section is living in gospel, God-centered relationships while waiting for Jesus. You guys remember that? So that's it. What, how do we live? Jesus is going to come at some point. This shows us how we're supposed to live with one another while we wait for Christ's return. And I said there's seven things in this passage that teach us. This is a very practical. How do I relate to people in the church and outside the church? And so we talked about three last week. We talked about speaking Jesus, having that bold gospel. We saw that in verse 2. He spoke the, the gospel boldly. And so we speak Christ to one another with confidence. In verse 4, we talked about pleasing God and not pleasing man and how we're tempted at times to want to do things just for people's approval. But ultimately, we have God's approval. And then in verses 5 to 8, we talked about this whole idea of affectionate love. What does it look like for us to really have hearts that are filled with genuine love for one another in the church? And how do we cultivate that? So those are the three that we looked at last week. So I hope this past week, as you were driving to your community group and then driving home from your community group, you have three ways to evaluate if what took place was pleasing to God. Did those things or some variation of those things to some degree take place in your group as you met. And so this morning, we're going to do numbers four to seven, okay? So we're going to walk through some more, and I really am praying that these stick. I know that you read your Bible a lot, and you hear sermons every Sunday. This is one I, I think could really get traction with us to help us to really know what we're looking for in all the time we spend together, whether that's a go mission or on grow mission, we're spending time together, and so what do we look for in that time? So we're going to look at the next uh, four this morning. So the fourth one, you have the three from last week. Number four is this. I'm going to call it, I couldn't figure out a better way to say this, so I apologize, but transparent soul sharing is how I worded it. And we see this in verse eight. So you look at verse eight with me. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we talked about that last week, the deep love we have for one another, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves. And what Paul is getting at is, I wanted to share with you my soul. I wanted to share with you deep feelings of emotion. The, the word there, actually for own selves, is the word breath. It's like, I want to share the very things that make me breathe. The things that I, I strive for and love, I want to make them known to you. I want to reveal them to you. I want to tell you about them. So it seems like Paul is very simply here talking about being known by others. Other people knowing who you really are. It's sharing the struggles, the joys, the trials, the secret things, the hidden things. The things that no one would know about you if you did not volunteer them and share them with other people. And listen, this, is, this to me is the key. And we're going to camp out in point one, or point four, I guess, a little longer than the others. But I think this is key because this is the way our relationship 
is to be God-centered by sharing openly with one another because when we do that, we're imaging God. Do you understand that? When you share things about yourself that nobody else would know and you are open and honest and transparent, you're imaging God because God shares things with us that we would never know if he didn't share them with us. Does that make sense? So this is an opportunity really for us to act like God. Much of God was hidden, even at creation. Although we could see glimpses of who God was and what he was like, he began to disclose himself, right? And then he begins to give us his written word and discloses more of himself so we can know more about what he's like. And then when Jesus comes, we get a full-blown picture of someone God, Jesus, in the image of God. He, he shows us what God is exactly like. So God is revealing himself to us in ways we would never know if he didn't choose to do it. And so when we do the same thing with one another, we get to image God. We get to be self-disclosing like God is self-disclosing. And I think, I mean, this is true not just of this particular point, but all seven of the points that we're going to talk about are all the same. It's really about us imaging God. We, we get to act like God because God is in relationship, right? God in the Trinity has always been in relationship with himself, <laughs> with each other. This is really why God said it is not good for man to be alone because if man's alone, man can't image God in relationships. Yes, it's about husbands and wives, but I think it's broader than that. I think God knows. I create people in my image. I want them to show the world what I'm like. So I've got to put more than one of them together because we're more than one. We're three in one. And I want the world to see how the Trinity interacts by how we interact. Right? And we know that about marriage. Right? Marriage exists to show off son's relationship with the church. And so it's the same thing. This is why relationships exist. And so in this case, it's this showing of ourselves, the the bearing of our souls to one another so that other people can know us for who we really are. That is what God has called us to do so we can image him since he has existed in eternal Trinitarian relationship. But there's also just practical benefits. So it's not just, although this should be enough, you get to act like God when you tell people about yourself and things that they wouldn't know. But there's actually just benefits for us as humans that we can learn from. So here's the first benefit that I see is you get to interact with someone on a deeper, richer level. Have you ever had that with someone where you, you get to know them in a whole new way? Or maybe the opposite's true. You've known someone for like four or five weir- years, and then you still say, I don't think I really know them still. Right? You've been there. I've been there. So there's this chance, this sense which we can get to know each other in a deeper way when we act like God and share things. The other advantage is, when you do that, it gives others an opportunity to care for you. A chance to speak something about Jesus to you that will help bring comfort, encouragement, direction, hope, whatever you need. So it's good for your soul as you image God, and it's good for your relationships, for one another. You get get to know somebody in a whole new way. And God, I think, he's designed a way to make this happen, I think, very naturally. I don't know about you, I don't just all of a sudden start blurting out my deepest hurts and pains to everybody or anybody, but God's kind of designed a way. And I think the natural way God designed for us to learn how to open up our lives to one another is really through his word. 
It's through the applying of his word. And so it says in Hebrews, you guys are probably familiar with, this, with these verses. In Hebrews it says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And what does it do? It piercing, so there's the first action. We got an action there. It piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning. So it pierces and it discerns. What does it discern? The thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So as we seek to apply God's word together in our community groups and in our groups of three, and we're just friends we hang out with, what it does is it discerns your thoughts. It reads your mail and then gives you a chance in that setting to talk about how that, whatever the passage is, is correcting you or encouraging you. So it seems like God has a way to make it natural for us to look at God's word, review it, and then begin to apply it by going, okay, what, how does this impact me? How is this, how is this piercing into my heart? And then sharing that with the people that you're with so they can help you and care for you. So I think God has this set up, the way the Spirit and the Word works, and relationships, to help us not just image Him, but to grow together and to know each other at a deeper level. So it seemed like you got a system set up, like kind of God knew what He was doing when He made people, and He gave us His Word, so that we could enjoy fellowship and life with one another. So let me get even more practical into this, because I think there are some of you in this room that maybe would say, I've done that, and it didn't go well. I know that could be you. And so I want to go, uh, these are like, this is really in the weeds. This may be more practical than I usually go, but I hope this is helpful. So let me just address this. If you are on the receiving end of someone sharing something that's very sensitive, slightly confidential, something that you would never know if they didn't share it with you, how do you respond Because how you respond is going to determine whether that relationship continues to grow or goes south. Maybe you've been there. So how do we respond when someone opens up their life that way? So the first thing that I try to think about when I'm with somebody who opens up their life is to remember that it is an honor and a privilege when someone shares something with me that I would never know if they didn't share it. It is an honor. I am honored when I'm with you guys and you share something with me about a deep hurt, something from your past, something you're really struggling with, something potentially embarrassing, I am honored that you would ever share that with me. Keep that in mind. The second thing I would say is this. Make sure that you keep that to yourself. It's funny how many times someone has said to, started to have a conversation with me as if I know what they're talking about, and I look at them and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they go, oh, Elspeth didn't tell you? And I go, no, she doesn't tell me anything. What you talk about with her is for her, not for me. And the same should be with all of us, husbands and wives. Somebody shares something with you, it's not for your spouse. It's not. That's confidential information that somebody shared with you so they could be known. They don't want that being spread. So remember that. If you're in a group and someone's sharing, that stays in the group. Prick your finger, shake your hand, whatever you got to do, right? (laughs) Shake. (laughs) But it stays there. It doesn't go anywhere else. The third thing I would say is this. 
is don't forget to follow up. Man, if somebody opens up their soul to you and then they don't hear from you or anyone else for a week, that can be painful. So if someone, someone in your friends or in a group setting really bears their soul, make sure that you guys are following up with each other. How are you doing? Thank you for sharing. Make sure they know that they've been heard and cared for. And when they do share, be sure to resist giving your opinion to what they've gone through or your personal experience of what they've gone through. They need Jesus. They need you to share something about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing, or what he will do that will bring them hope, comfort, peace, joy, something. So we need to have self-control with our words and realize the person you just shared really doesn't care what you think. They need Jesus. They shared it because they want you to talk to them about Jesus. So tell them about Jesus. It's something that will bring them the hope that they need. So just tuck those four things away. I know that some of the groups we have are sharing in a very, very close quarter, intimate type way. So just make sure those are functioning so that these relationships can grow strong and healthy. And do the same thing when you're with people who don't know Jesus. I love, love that we tell stories with each other about, I was in the grocery store and I asked so-and-so how they were doing. And the next thing I know, I'm in a 25-minute conversation and the person's weeping. They, have, they need to be known. And obviously, there's nobody in life that they can be known with. And so the stranger who says, hi, how you doing, is suddenly that person. Do it with waiters and waitresses when you go to places frequently. Hear their story, learn something, tuck it away. Then when you go back the next time, bring it up again. Let them know that you want to know them. That's what Jesus wants. So let's act like him and let's pursue getting to know one another as we disclose things about ourselves that no one else would ever know. Make sense? Okay, let's live them. Let's live them so we can be close and continue to grow together. Fifth thing is this, sacrifice of time and resources. Sacrifice of time and resources. You want to have God, gospel-centered relationships, it's going to take some sacrifice. That's a big surprise, huh? (laughs) We know that. So look at verse 9. Here's how Paul words it. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So what's he saying? I worked hard. I made sacrifices. I gave up certain things so that we could spend time together without me being a burden so that we could enjoy Jesus together, talk about the gospel together. And I know that our time and our resources are very limited. I know we've got limited time. We've got limited capacity to get things done. So I think what God is addressing here is if any of your limited time and any of your limited capacity is being used to labor and toil for others. So I know it's limited, but is any of the limited time, is any of your limited resources being used to bless and to help others? Is there ever a time in your week or your month when you make a sacrifice, when you sense the Spirit leading you to make a sacrifice to meet someone's need, to lessen their burden? That's what Paul is going after. You do that ever. I want to lessen someone's burden, so I'm going to sacrifice my time. When you do that, listen, this is how we have gospel God-centered relationships, by making sacrifices for one another. Can we think of anyone in the Trinity who has ever made sacrifices for you? (laughs) 
There's our example. There's our motivation. There's the power. We look to Christ and say, look at the sacrifices he made, not just in his death, but in his life for people. And we go, now I get to go do the same. I get to image God by making sacrifices for others to lessen their burden, like Christ died to lessen my burden. And so we image God this way. And it's going to take sacrifice. It is. That's just the bottom line. It's going to take sacrificing. And it even takes sacrificing in order for you to bear your soul to people. There's a sacrifice there. You're taking a step of faith and going, I'm going to share this. I'm going to share this personal thing. And there's a sense in there which you're making a sacrifice in order to share with others. So when you're driving to your community group or group of three or driving home, or maybe you just met someone in the grocery store and you think of all the other things you could have been getting done during that time, <laughs> remember, you were imaging God. Because I guarantee you that you're going to be driving to wherever that meeting is thinking, oh, I could be getting something else done right now. Because if your to-do list is like mine, that's what you're thinking. You're like, oh, if I just skip that meeting, think about what else I could get done around the house. Think about my to-do list and what I could check off. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for that. But don't turn your car around. Keep going. <laughs> and image God and make sacrifices for one another. All right, number six. Number six, I worded it this way. I'm using the language of the text, but then I have to translate it for us or interpret it. He talks about being holy, righteous, and blameless. He talks about his conduct being holy and righteous and blameless. So I see this in verse 10. If you want to look there, he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. So if you're going to have God-gospel-centered relationships, then they need to have a conduct towards each other that is holy, righteous, and blameless. I think what he's getting at here is basically, don't sin against each other. I feel like that's kind of the bottom line, simply put. Don't sin against one another. This whole idea of conduct towards one another, it's kind of a hard phrase in the Greek. It's hard for me to get my my brain around, but it's just this idea of how you behave for one another, but from the heart. So if the last point was about sacrifices, this one is more about your heart behind the sacrifice. What is your heart doing? Is your heart holy and blameless and righteous when you're making the sacrifices or when you're moving towards one another? So this means, drum roll please, some do's and some don'ts. I think it means not holding grudges against one another. And I know that when we're hurt, it's easy to hold a grudge. But I think he's saying, let your heart attitude be holy and righteous and blameless. No holding grudges. No judging. No ignoring one another or avoiding one another. No harboring anger or offenses. No gossip. He's warning us about our heart attitude being righteous so that our actions come out of that. We're not coming in on a Sunday morning and then we see Bob, we go the other direction because we don't want to talk to him. Maybe because we're holding a grudge. There's nobody in this church named Bob, right? Sorry, sorry, I'd ask real quick. I picked a name that I thought was random. All right, we're good. Robert Crow, Robert. You guys aren't Bobs. You don't go by Bob, though, so okay. Whew. I think it means 
asking forgiveness from one another when we have hurt one another, being humble before one another. I think it means assuming the best of one another. I think it's assuming that when someone does something that hurts or offends you, that you maybe don't know all the information behind what they did. And maybe it wasn't even directed to you to begin with. I think it's very healthy for us to keep in mind that we do not know what everyone in our church family has been through in the past. In the past 10 years, in the past 10 months, in the past week, this morning. This morning when that person didn't greet you like you wanted to be greeted, you do not know what happened in their home this morning <laughs> that caused them to not greet you the way that you wanted to be greeted. So let's make, make assumptions. Let's, let's best foot forward if we're going to assume anything, assume that they're struggling with something and not take things personally when something doesn't go the way that you want it to go. Listen, I'm old enough to know that all of us on every given week walk through some sort of trauma, drama, relational hurt, emotional challenge, physical challenge, or some combination of all of those that makes me not want to talk to any of you. Maybe you've been there. And so don't assume, not that I would do that intentionally, but if for some reason you're interacting with someone and you feel like, yeah, what's happening? Maybe something bad is happening. And maybe it took all it could for them to drag themselves here on Sunday or to drag themselves to your community group or drag themselves to the group of three and they just barely made it there. So just assume the best. Assume the best of one another. Let's live holy, righteous, and blameless with each other. And number seven, we're on number seven, right? All right, number seven is this, encouragement. Encouragement. I love these verses. These verses have impacted me as a dad as much as they've impacted me being a pastor. But look what it says in verse 11. God says this to us. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I just want to go back to the beginning of the verse because there's repetition here. He says, For you know how like a father with his children, verse 12, we exhorted each one of you. That word exhorted is really just another way of saying, I encouraged you. And then what does he say next? and encouraged you. It's almost like God knows that we need double encouragement. So he's repetitive. He's repeating himself. You need encouragement, and you need to encourage one another. We need to be strengthened by one another if we're going to stay in the faith. Do you understand that? Assume that apart from other people's encouragement, you will drift. Your faith will get weak. We need one another. And listen, if you are passionately seeking to know Christ, to live for Christ, and to live on mission with Christ, then you desperately need encouragement. In fact, I think a way to gauge how rigorously you are seeking to live for Christ is by how aware you are of your need for encouragement. Do you get that? If I'm going to work, coming home, mowing the lawn, drinking a beer, watching a movie, I don't need you to encourage me to do that. 
I'll do that on my own, thank you. But if I'm slugging it out, wanting to love my wife as Christ loved the church, battling my sin nature that's at my throat every day, trying to live on mission with my neighbors and make disciples, I need encouragement. So the more you're on mission, the more you're going to need encouragement. Let that be a gauge for you. How much do I need encouragement? If you need it a lot, then keep it up. That means you're doing the right thing. It means you're in a war. People in a war need encouragement. So keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. We need to encourage one another. And then he says that he wants to charge, he wants us to charge one another as he charged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk in your relationships with one another in a way that is worthy of God. Don't measure how you're relating to one another by how you see other people relating to one another. Relate to one another based on the worth of God. And so the question I have for us then is, how much is God worth to us? Because <laughs> that should impact our relationships. Is he everything to you? Is God worth everything? Is Jesus and his gospel mission capturing and captivating your heart in such a way that everything else is sort of eclipsed in the background? Are you fascinated this morning by the sheer worth of Jesus, <laughs> seen in his all-knowing wisdom, his worth seen in his incomprehensible love for you, fascinated by the worth of his inexhaustible forgiveness, his unsurpassing care, his abundant grace, his eternal happiness? Are you fascinated by the worth of Jesus' infinite faithfulness to you, his inscrutable judgments? Is he worth everything? And if he is, then that will impact how we relate to one another. Because I'm supposed to walk with you in a manner that's worthy of his greatness. That's what it means to have God-centered relationships. Right? I'm doing it. Why? Because God's worth it. If God wasn't worth it, I'd walk out the door. I don't naturally love people. I'd be out the door if God wasn't worth it. But he is. And that makes me more lovable. Praise God. And you. And it makes us want to be in this thing together to help each other grow. So being captivated, really, by the worth of God, being charged then by others and us charging one another to keep walking in a manner that's worthy of him is really the only way that we're going to stay God-centered. And we've been talking about encouragement since day one of the church plant. I mean, one of the very first verses we've ever talked about and memorized together was Hebrews 10. Some of you guys are going to Start to say it in your head as I begin it. The author says this, God says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So this is God-centered relationships. We need to stir each other up. Keep loving each other. Keep loving each other. Come on, we can do it. And good works. Let's keep living on mission. Let's keep living on mission. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some None of you in this room, right? Some, hopefully none of you in this room, but encouraging one another 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need encouragement. We need encouragement. But you got to be together for it to happen. You got to be together in some kind of setting where you can give and receive encouragement. That can happen here on a Sunday in a small way, but I think it's going to happen in a big way. I think it's going to happen in the way that God means it to happen here. You got to be in a smaller group setting. So you can actually give it and receive it specifically as you're applying God's word, encouraging one another. You can walk in a manner worthy of God. Let's do it together. Come on. We need that encouragement for one another. And I think God knows that. And that's why he tells us, don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect meeting together. So Matt, are you saying that if I don't go to a group of three or to a small group, that I'm disobeying God? I'm not saying that. God is saying that. (laughs) So when you go to your group of three, your men's or ladies' meetings, whatever you're calling them, fight clubs, your community group, whatever those settings are, we have different names for them, go ready to be encouraged. Go ready to encourage because you need to be stirred up. Others need your help. We're counting on you. If you don't come, there's something missing from the group. That's the point of the body of Christ. If you're not there, there's an arm missing or a leg. We need you. We need each other. Don't think, no, you don't. Yes, you do. We do. We need each other if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of God. So let's make it a habit. I love it that our groups, we have a slide, not to put it up, but we've got 10 different groups that meet every week. Every week. That seems like a habit to me. That's a good thing because you know you're not going to make it every time. You're going to miss one or two because something happens. Kids get sick, work, whatever, life. But I love it that it's regular. I think it's a habit. We need the habit. If we're going to do these seven things, we got to spend time together enough to do the habit, right? In order for us to experience these things. So I want to encourage us. I gave you that little card as you came in. If you trim it down, it can be the same size as a credit card. You can stick it in your wallet. So as you're driving to your community group, as you're driving home, you can use that to evaluate. What, am I, what are we doing? What, why? What, what's the heart thing that God's looking for? You can pull it out on the way home and say, how did that go? How, how did I accomplish what God has put on our hearts to do? So what I want to do is spend a minute for you guys on your own just to pray over the seven. So it's going to take a couple minutes. I'm just going to pray. I want you to thank God for the one that is your strength or your gift. Because you probably look at the list of seven and go, that one's easy. Remember, that's not easy for the person sitting next to you. That's your easy. Thank God for that. Thank God. Say, God, this one's easy for me. Whichever the seven, just thank him. Like, and ask him to keep fanning that into flame. Because that's the strength you bring to the group. You get that? So if your strength is number two and somebody else's is number four and somebody else's is number seven, you're going to have a healthy group. So be grateful for that. So cultivate that. And then I'd encourage you to look at the seven and go, oh boy, yeah, this is the one where I really probably need to grow the most. And then just pray. Ask the Spirit of God to help you grow in that area. Does that make sense? This is, this is as simple as it gets when it comes to relationships. This is like 101. Maybe that's why this is the first letter Paul wrote to any of the churches from the very beginning. It's like, let's start with a really simple one. <laughs> let's talk about relationships with each other and what they're supposed to look like. So let's take a few minutes and just pray. You pray with your friend, your neighbor, your parent, your spouse, if you want to. You can pray on your own. And just thank, thank God for the one you're strong in. 
and then ask him to help you to grow in one of the other ones. And then we're going to sing a song or two after that. Father, I pray right now for my friends, even as we look over this list. God, I, I, I'm grateful because I know every, every person in this room who loves you is very strong in one of these seven or very strong in two of them because you have worked in their hearts. And so I thank you for that. And I pray that you would stir that gift in them. I pray that you would fan it to flame in a way that they would excel even more in that area. And then God, for the areas that we're weak in, I pray that you protect us from the lies of the enemy who wants to tell us that we suck and that we'll never change and that you're a burden to everyone around you and all the lies that he puts in our heads. I pray that you'd bind him up and I pray instead, Spirit, you would speak what is true and that the seed of all seven of these are in their hearts because, Spirit, you are in their hearts. And so all they're doing right now is asking you to do the very thing you love to do and that is to help us grow in the image of God. And so do that, I pray. As my friends pray silently for the next minute or so, I pray they'd encounter your presence, that they would be encouraged, and that they'd be very aware of how you're working in their lives, in their strength area and in their weaker area. And God, I pray that at the very bottom of their prayers, at all of our prayers would be that we just want to walk in a manner that reflects how much you are worth. Jesus, you're worth it all. You're worth everything. So help us now as we pray.